I, I don't think the fewer the better. I think just the opposite. So I think the more banks out there, the better, especially regional banks. That's what I worry about right now. They offered bespoke, and the big banks tend to offer one size fits all. Yeah. I mean, even Charles Schwab, look at their stock. They're really getting hit. They're being lumped in with those guys. And imagine losing that if you're just a, an average person uh, who wants to get into investing on that level, not the sort of leather chair brokers, but on the Schwab level. There's this whole sort of uh, infrastructure here that we would really, really be hurt by, I think, if we lost this. Yeah. My sense is the ecosystem is kind of not feeling well right now. Good way of putting it, ecosystem. Yeah. Let's hope it. Let's hope it gets better. Okay. The Fed, the Fed just boosted rates another quarter point to the highest level. It's the highest level now since two thousand five. Um, Janet Yellen says, "Well, I think we can pull this off and not have a recession." Do you believe it? Hi, everyone, and welcome to. To the Friday, May 5th, 2023 installment of the Silicon Insider, the uncensored look at life and business in the Valley. My name is Mike Maloney in need of a haircut, and I'm here with special contributor Scott Budman, technology reporter for NBC Bay Area. Our producer is Jordan Henderson, our East Coast correspondent is Bob Grove, and our host, as always, is the Silicon Valley Business Journal. Well, let's start with the big one in the news. Uh, First Republic Bank is gone. We talked about it last weekend last Friday, that they were in trouble and they were in discussions. It no longer exists. So we've had two of the most important banks in Silicon Valley disappear in the course of, what, three weeks? I mean, this is kind of frightening. Uh, and maybe just as frightening is it looks like all the money in both went to J.P. Morgan, a gigantic national bank. Now, it, it seems to me that not just the loss of these two banks Augur some things to be nervous about. I'm, I'm already beginning to hear, well, Cal West Bank now is in trouble, apparently. And I'm beginning to hear analysts saying this could be the beginning of, you know, a chain reaction across the country that these companies, these banks all have are in the same predicament, small and medium banks, regional banks. And we could see a bank collapse, a bubble collapse. You know, like we've seen, we haven't seen in our lifetimes, but yeah, it could happen now. And that we think these as are discrete events, but maybe they're not. Maybe they're a trend. Right. And the two that we saw, Silicon Valley Bank and then First Republic, were very similar. Regional banks saw the deposits go, saw the stock value go, and then, like clockwork, over the weekend, taken over by the FDIC and then sold to a much larger bank and... I, as you and I speak, we're very close to heading into another weekend with several more regional banks having very similar concerns, deposits out, stock value crippled, almost down to zero. And I guess the question is just how many of these go before the, the bleeding stops. And nobody seems to have any idea when that stops. Yeah. And, you know, it that worries me enough, but it also bothers me that the two banks we lost around here, First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank, were very dedicated to the Silicon Valley philosophy and the people of the Valley and the startups and the VCs. And now we're seeing all of those depositors going to this gigantic bank that doesn't have the Silicon Valley mentality or the philosophy. It's not dedicated to 
entrepreneurship and new startup companies and venture investing and that sort of thing, are we losing a major component of what makes this valley strong? Yes, and I think you can even expand it. You know, I have talked to a lot of Silicon Valley venture capitalists who said both SVB and First Republic treated them well when they were small and didn't have much money, and they really appreciated that contact. Um, one VC said that her fund specifically targets um, helping CEOs of female-led companies and companies where the CEO is a person of color. She says that's likely to go away. So yeah, Silicon Valley loses that. I also wonder, Mike, if that feeling of what a regional bank can give you is going to be lost in other areas of California, in other states, in other words, all across the country, is there going to be this huge run on regional banks? And what does that mean for people who feel that relationship to their bank? Does that just go away? Right. I mean, most of the companies around here dealt with both those banks personally and professionally. These banks were there from the moment some of these important startup companies got their first round of financing. You know, you get the check from the from the VC and you stick it in Silicon Valley Bank and you get a line of credit. If JP Morgan would do they give a damn about small startup tech companies? I know it would be it would be I, worth it. As I can see I can see a business decision. But remember the Valley, people forget, the Valley started. Dave Packard walked into Bank of America and asked for a loan for Hewlett Packard right at the beginning of World War II. They turned him down because he didn't have enough credit. He didn't have enough collateral. Uh, so he went down the street to Wells Fargo, a up-and-coming young bank, and they gave him the money he needed on a handshake. That is a that is the ultimate Silicon Valley moment. And Packard was so loyal to Wells Fargo that he never left that bank, even when they became one of the largest companies in the world and helped make Wells Fargo what it was. Are you going to go to J.P. Morgan and and do be able to do the same thing and get that line of credit to make your little startup work? Or are they just going to look at some algorithms going to say they don't have enough they don't have enough value yet for us to give them any money? And I'd honestly be surprised if these big banks, if they do end up taking over, don't take a a page from the the big music companies, the big record companies of the day. Remember, they would. They'd be the giant record companies, but they'd start a label that focused on small indie bands or something like that. And that's what these regional banks really do. And I think the startup culture has gotten so big and so sexy and so successful that these big banks would be remiss if they didn't have sort of that A&R person out there to focus on startups, to focus on the VC money and the, uh, the venture funds, because boy, would they be missing something gigantic if they didn't. I just, I don't know that they will, but I hope they do, or at least put more money into some of these regional banks to try to keep them afloat and survive this crisis for however long it lasts. You know, I think that's a great analogy that perhaps they should be, you know, these guys running the loans weren't the guys that wrecked these banks. Uh, maybe, maybe Morgan or whoever the other big bank that's in the game should hire some of these people that know, that have the networks. I mean, this was this was a very personal relationship around here. You know, if you open up a, a new J.P. Morgan branch in the old SVB branch in Saratoga, you should probably hire some of the people that used to work for 
for Silicon Valley Bank because they know all the people. They know they know how this works around here. But it's right. Take a first. First Citizens took over for SVB, and they did keep a lot of the workers. Now J.P. Morgan for First Republic is in the process, I am told, of keeping at least some, if not all, of those employees. And you're right. Those are the people that have the relationships with the startups and the CEOs and the VCs. And and ideally, that sticks, um, A, because it's employment for local people, but B, for that relationship. And I don't know if that's how it goes, but I would be surprised if they just decide, oh, we don't want to be part of the startup culture or part of the VC culture, because it seems that everybody wants that. And this is a chance for them to get in and do that. As long as they don't fall back on old ways. I mean, they're going to have to accept this as a kind of a different reality. I mean, I, you, me, you know me, I always worry about the entrepreneurs. And last week you mentioned, hey, the VCs may be starting to write checks again after months of, n- of not doing anything. This is the moment when it's supposed to happen. This is the moment when we have all these laid off workers trying to start new companies. And if if the VCs, if there's anything it gets interferes in this process of getting an, a venture money, to, you know, angel and series A venture money to these startups, everything collapses again. And so I hope that sitting back there in New York, JP Morgan appreciates what a, what a delicate but incredibly valuable property they have on their hands here. Wouldn't be surprised. I mean, Jamie Dimon has talked about um, the promise of cryptocurrency, for example. I think he's he's got his finger on sort of that that young hip culture, at least a little bit. And uh, I, you know, he's not someone to miss out on opportunity. And this is a big opportunity. That's true. Do you worry about the center, the return to the centralization of big banks? Absolutely, absolutely, because of what we just talked about, and yeah. um, the fewer. I don't think the fewer, the better. I think just the opposite. So I think the more banks out there, the better, especially regional banks. That's what I worry about right now. They offered bespoke, and the big banks tend to offer one-size-fits-all. Yeah. I mean, even Charles Schwab, look at their stock. They're really getting hit. They're being lumped in with those guys. And imagine losing that if you're just an average person uh, who wants to get into investing on that level, not the sort of leather chair brokers, but on the Schwab level. There's this whole sort of uh, infrastructure here that we would really, really be hurt by, I think, if we lost this. Yeah, my sense is the ecosystem is kind of not feeling well right now. It's a good way of putting it, ecosystem, yeah. Let's hope it, let's hope it gets better. Okay, the Fed, the Fed just boosted rates another quarter point to the highest level. It's the highest level now since 2005. Um, Janet Yellen says, well, I think we can pull this off and not have a recession. Do you believe it? The, the two things I think it, at, that are fighting here is, one, and people don't really realize this as much or they don't think about this, the Fed is not working for the banks. The Fed is not working for investors. The Fed is working for the average person who has to put gas in his or her car and buy eggs and groceries and has been hurt by the rapid march of inflation. That's who the Fed is working for here. And that's why interest rates are going up, even while it seems counterintuitive to what's going on with the banks. The problem is it's counterintuitive to what's going on with the banks. And the higher the interest rate, it looks like the more banks are suffering. And right now, banks are getting the headlines because we may have this big, broad collapse, which does nobody any good and it doesn't do our economy any good. And so I see the two sides to this and they seem to be 
pulling each other in opposite directions, and I just don't know who ends up winning here. Yeah, and well, we could all end up losing if we get a if we get a full blown stagflation. Right. We we talked about this many times over the years. That's it's always a worry sitting out there, and I think we're closer to it than we've been, well, in a long time. I think part of what the Fed is seeing is a fairly strong economy. Shoppers are still shopping. Companies, for the most part, are still hiring. And yet, like you say, inflation going up in that market is is not good. They're really trying to slow the economy down. And even as prices start to dip and the tech sector lays people off and we see banking concerns brought upon by higher interest rates, inflation is still up there. And so it's it's not working as well as I think the Fed had hoped. And that's why... You know, Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen are still hinting at more potential cuts in the future or more potential interest rate hikes in the future. Yeah. yeah. And um, the one that worries me is because it's because the economy is also a question of attitude. And surveys of the general population seems to show that most people feel like recessions just around the corner and they begin. It begins to change their behavior as they cut purchasing and, you know, activities and, and vacations and all that, they they can, they actually can accelerate a downturn once they believe it's going to happen. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, to an extent, yes. I think that people are overly negative about the economy as a whole, um, and that may lead to that. But, but then again, uh, you know, people may fill out surveys saying they feel bad, but shoppers are still shopping. I mean, and you're going to bring up Apple's currently current earning report, and that shows that they're not shopping as much as they used to, but they're not cutting back on a whole lot of stuff. And I think that's what the Fed is worried about, that the economy is still rather hot, not totally hot, but yeah. rather hot, and they want it to be cool, and it's not that cool yet. Okay, well, as long as we're on Apple. <laughs> <laughs> nice segue, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Scott. Uh Apple announced their financial results this week. Uh, posted quarterly revenue of $94.8 billion, down 3% year over year, and quarterly earnings per diluted share of $1.52, unchanged year after year. You know, in light of everything else going on, that's those are pretty good numbers. You know, if you, if you, basically it's Alice in Wonderland with the Queen. You know, if you can stay in one place and not fall backwards, you're doing, running as fast as you can, you're doing really well. Right. It would be hard to imagine coming out of the lockdown and everything with, with China and our own economy, you know, being uh, the brakes being pulled by the Fed that Apple would sell more phones and then laptops and things like that. And so it's not a big surprise that they saw a bit of a dip. But, you know, they're raising the money in services that they do, in subscriptions that they do. All time record in the services. Yeah. I mean, Tim Cook knows what time it is when it comes to earning report and a balance sheet like nobody's business yeah and I think we're seeing that. we've seen greater CEOs in this town but I don't think we've ever seen a more competent CEO he has run that ship brilliantly yeah he really has yeah you get some bad publicity on China and stuff but financially boy this is a well-run company right and they're also the big tech company that hasn't had big layoffs and there's a lot to be said for that as we know, and it's the dog that hasn't barked. We, we're so focused on Meta, you know, and everybody else, and and no one's talking about Apple except, you know, approving 
No big layoffs, no big warnings of layoff, no big warnings of a bad quarter, just steaming right along. And that leads to happy employees. We all know people who, you know, work at Salesforce, Meta, Twitter, they're nervous because they have, even if they still have their jobs, they're nervous. Apple doesn't seem to have that cloud hanging over the spaceship right now because Tim Cook keeps saying, we're not about to do large scale layoffs. We didn't grow as much in the pandemic as the other companies. And so we're stable. We're not hiring as much right now. We are trimming the sales of cost. But by doing that, we don't have to have the big layoff. And that makes everybody feel good. And when you have good, you know, employees that feel good, you can still crank out quality products. And Apple obviously is doing that. Yeah. You know what else makes employees feel good? A, uh, and a shareholder is a $23 billion. Uh, they're doing a giant buyback. I'm sorry. 90, 90 billion. 90 billion. Yeah. They said uh, they returned over $23 billion a shareholder during the quarter, and then they're going to do a $90 billion buyback of stock. You're right. I mean, Apple is doing everything. Increase in the value of your holdings. Right. They're doing everything investors like. They're they're looking good in the press. They're buying back their own stock, and, uh, and they're meeting expectations, even if those expectations are dampened a bit because of the current economy. I mean, Apple... And Tim Cook, they just, uh, you know, it's it's a master class every three months, it seems. And for all those retirees out there, they're also raising their quarterly dividend for the 11th year in a row. There have been successful companies, successful companies in this town that haven't even been around 11 years. And Apple keeps giving giving their shareholders more back every year. That's, that's amazing. It's true. Okay. Um, you know, uh, we always talk, we, we treat Elon Musk as the ultimate troll in Silicon Valley, but I've got another nominee, Peter Thiel. Did you see what he said this week? Uh, first of all, he killed Silicon Valley Bank on an email, uh, but now he's saying he's reluctant to move his operations to Florida from Silicon Valley because housing prices have soared. So he sort of convinced everybody to leave Silicon Valley. Everybody went to Texas or Florida. Now he's saying, uh, you shouldn't be in Florida. The housing prices are too expensive. Yes. It's so classic, it's so classic Peter Thiel. Right. People who follow him follow him at their peril sometimes. Can, can you imagine um, a scenario where Silicon Valley Bank didn't get all of its deposits covered and insured by the FDIC? And if some people were indeed left holding an empty bag after what Peter Thiel did, and oh my goodness, the the vitriolers, vitriolers, and torches, and a long rope—that's what—that's what would have happened in this town. Yeah. So uh, you know, I mean, he's obviously successful in a lot of ways, but um, you know, he's looking out for number one, and and I get it, but to follow that is is risky. Yeah. Okay. Um. On other matters, uh, the FTC has proposed barring Meta and uh, Facebook from profiting off the data it collects from young users, accusing the company of misleading parents and violating their 2020 privacy order. When has Meta not violated people's privacy? Even when they say they don't, they're still doing it. I mean, this is like a junkie. They cannot, you realize the entire company rests on a foundation of taking information from his users. And it's never going to give that up. Even 
even when there's agreements with the government and everything else, complaints in the press, front page stories in the Wall Street Journal, they're never going to give up their their endless demand for more privacy, private information. Right. And that's what I try to tell people about, you know, Instagram or Facebook or, or anything like that, meta in general, is that is what they do. They take information and sell it. And we all need to know that going in, no matter how old we are. Um, and therefore, think about anything I give to that company, I'm willing to give to anybody in the entire world. A dictatorship, an advertiser, it doesn't matter. And if that means that means a photograph of, uh, hey, I'm at band practice. All right, I don't mind that going everywhere. But think about what you do mind going everywhere and don't put that on any of these social media companies. I'd, I'd expand that to TikTok and Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, it was Cambridge Analytica back in 2018. And then a couple of years later, it was that privacy agreement in 2020. And now the FTC is showing its teeth saying Facebook violated that. And at this point, yes, if they indeed did that, they need to be punished. But it's also on us. We have to assume that this is what Facebook is going to do. And you tell people and they go, well, okay, but I, you know, I still want to post my vacation photos on Facebook, you know. And I don't see a lot of impact from them taking my private data. I especially hear that with uh, Gen Zs. They're indifferent to the fact they're being surveilled by everybody. And they are. That's a different mindset, and I understand it and respect it. It's, it's, you and I both know it's going to come to back to bite them in a big way one of these days. It very well could, and, and a lot of people are bullied online. A lot of people are given information that makes them feel bad. I mean, famously Instagram with, with young girls, teenage girls, um, yes. and this stuff does come back because of what we give them. And, uh, I just, I can't stress enough how yes, dangerous this is, but also how possible it is that we don't have to give them that information. That's and correct. Really, um, you know, you can look at the FTC and you can look at Cambridge and like, all this stuff is just their history. And they're telling us, this is what we do. And we need to tell them, okay, you can't do it with me. And I'm going to make sure of that. Or if nothing else, buy my information, the stuff I want to sell you. You know, it's nice that you gave me a free place to do work and the tools to do it with. Made me one of your laborers. But if you want my private information, you got to tell me what you want and then pay for it. We, we built this bizarre uh, social networking business model, uh, the, the way we monetize it. And it's downright evil when you get right down to it. And uh, there's got to be a, a new a new paradigm for all this before it just, you know, gets even worse. Yeah, I mean, the paradigm should be we, you know, empowering ourselves to hold back from these companies. Yeah, that's a good, but when the companies still do it to us, surreptitiously sometimes, True. They got to be held accountable too. But look at the advertising that's being pushed to you. If it's accurate, uh oh, maybe you're giving them too much information. If it's inaccurate, maybe you're doing something right. Well, wait till the morning. You're you're just a young man, Scott. Wait till the morning you turn sixty-five. Watch what happens. Watch what happens to your your terminal, your your display, on your laptop, on your own computer, on your phone. You know, all of a sudden, AARP will send you an email every third day. (laughs) Niagara, uh, you know, motor scooters to ride, you know, all that stuff. 
exactly the reason that we're on social media. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, speaking of um, companies you can't quite trust, all this talk about oh AI is really dangerous. In fact, I was on a on a podcast last week with Joel Cocken, and uh, they had a serial entrepreneur lived in uh, Miami. I suppose he's moving now because Peter Thiel said so. But anyway, he's he basically said because he had been involved in some startups for AI, and he said people don't appreciate that. AI is going to basically destroy every white-collar job in America. It'll take a few years, but basically, if you have a job that's a brain job where you're sitting, you know, doing data mining or any of that kind of you know, code writing or anything else, your job is going to disappear to AI. And he says people don't appreciate how dangerous that is. Well, uh, in keeping with that theme, Microsoft is barreling ahead on AI, it's it's showing around its new Bing chat in a big way. So this notion that, oh, we'll all agree to a moratorium on AI development uh, in order to save, you know, save our economy and our lives. Well, we now know that certain companies are racing to get as much done as, as they can before that happens, if ever. And also convinces me, even if we have that moratorium, companies are going to have black box labs, and they're going to be working on it all the way through the moratorium. Well, and what will they have to do? They're going to have to hire people. Every technology, and we can go back hundreds of years, every technology uh, is going to, quote, unquote, wipe out the workforce. And what it ends up doing typically is adding new jobs to the workforce. And I don't mean to be a Pollyanna about AI. I recognize the concerns here. As someone who literally writes for a living, I understand the concerns here. But as someone who covers technology, um, I believe that this will create a lot of jobs. I mean, as we speak, we're just hours from uh, AMD, Advanced Micro Devices. I mean, an old company in an old industry. It announced it's going to work on an AI processor and saw its stock value go up by $8 billion in a day. Um, I don't even know what an AI processor is or what it would do, but it's going to create some jobs. And I think if AI does indeed catch on um, in the workforce, yeah, some areas are going to be replaced. But I believe some areas are also going to be created. And I say that both because of what AI is, but also because of what technology tr traditionally has been. Sure. But, you know, as a student of history here, uh, I also know how many people were working in the automobile industry in America in 1946, you know, and then automation came along. Now, other countries have come here. Right. So they brought the numbers up. But if we look at the, the companies then that were building cars, how many jobs were lost that never came back? My fear is this is one of those that takes away a lot of jobs, but it's not replacing them with human beings. This is not the Industrial Revolution where everybody left the farm and went to work in the factories. It's everybody leaves the office and stays home for the rest of their lives. You know? I mean, potentially. I just, you know, I, I don't know. I just, it would surprise me. Uh, if if this wasn't a job creator as well. Um, but everything is still kind of open about AI. We've assumed a lot of things that haven't happened yet uh, for good and bad. Uh, and I, I just, uh, you know, my sort of spider sense as a journalist say these assumptions are bad on, on both sides. And I try not to jump to one conclusion or another. I would just be surprised because even in, you know, you're always talking about, oh, Scott, you're so young, whatever. I've seen enough of the tech industry in my years to know that there have been a lot of things that were supposed to put us all out of work 
that have actually created jobs and investor value, et cetera, et cetera. And, and yeah, wait, wait, have you, Mr. Narrator, have you gone on YouTube lately and watched some of these uh, documentaries that are obviously being read by AI? Yes. And uh, there is something oddly cold about that. And I also get that, you know, songs are being written by AI. I think uh, the true Drake fan, for example, is going to be able to spot a song written by Drake versus a song written by AI. But look, studios that make music, if we're going to use this music example, I mean, Pro Tools wiped out a whole lot of stuff. And yet, Music is still being made and sold and enjoyed and all that. And I realize technology has changed. Studios. It wasn't real good on professional musicians, but it was real good on garage musicians. Right. Right. And and again, it's shifting. shifting. The profession shifting. Yes. And, and right. I think we'll do that to a lot of professions. I agree. Um, but we don't really know which ones yet, and we don't really know how the shift is going to be. So before we pack it in. You just said intelligence now is on Moore's Law, and that means... You know, changes are going to happen real, real fast that we can't predict any of them. True. So, okay. <laughs> Finally, back to the past. Um, Google just announced the Pixel Fold. In other words, we're back to the flip phone, folks. Everything old is new again. Have you played with it yet? Have you seen it? I've seen it, yeah. I, and I think uh, they've done one. Samsung's done one. Um you know, it's. I, I actually had a uh, a Motorola Razor back in the day. It was one of the first cell phones I had. The flip phone. I had a flip phone for years. Yeah, and uh, I don't know that I've looked back. You know, I, it's not like I yearn for that, but they were fun. I get it. Uh, and if they can make it work, great. I, I'm just surprised because if you remember the flip phones of, of you know, years past, weren't entire screens. Uh, no. There was, right, there were some gadgets in between. Now you take an entire screen and you sort of split it up, and it's fascinating to see. I just, I just don't know that we need that. Um, how much of it is a gimmick, and how much of it is is really helpful? And I guess sales will ultimately determine that. But yeah, I think you're going to see a few. Well, I think you'll kind of understand when you get a pair of these <laughs> glasses. Well, I'm read that tiny print. Oh yeah, bifocal uh, flip phones, perhaps. Yeah, does it have a satisfying snap when it closes? They put the spring in it, like the flip, like the flip phone. Yeah, you just can't close it too hard, or else you'll smash the, you know, all glass screen. Then, right. <laughs> okay, uh, that's it for now, folks. You can find us on the Silicon Valley Business Journal homepage, as well as on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Have a great weekend in rainy Silicon Valley. Uh, stay dry. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs>